Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, we hear the voice of you in the scriptures. Behold, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Lord, give us ears to hear this morning. We recognize the presence of Jesus here with us in the Holy Spirit. So I ask that you would open us now to receive your word, to be changed by it, and to totally live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Scott said, we are continuing uh, today through the book of Matthew, up to chapter 17, as we're working our way through this whole book. Last week, we looked at Peter's declaration uh, that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God, and then a seeming failure to live that out and to trust in him. And here, we see again Peter's probably strange reaction to Jesus being changed before him in the text. Peter seems to want to build tents rather than to worship Jesus. But I want to focus today on a particular thing that the Father says to those around Jesus. He says, listen to him. Listen to him. I think perhaps this is one of the hardest things for a Christian person to do is to really listen to him. I'm convinced that if we did truly listen to Jesus, then some of the things that we are anxious about, we would no longer be anxious about. That some of the things that we are really concerned about, the burdens that we have, we would no longer be burdened by them because we will believe the words of Jesus. In fact, I believe, I'm convinced that if the world listened to him, that too their problems would be worked out by Jesus. And so this is a very important thing that the Father says about Jesus, listen to him. And so I want to look at the question of, well, how do we listen to Jesus? And I think this is a bit more complex than it initially looks because we often try to listen to Jesus and there's various ways that we try to do that. We try to do that through mere obedience. That is, we think that if I just read the Bible more and focus more on my relationship with God and if I just learn more than, and I know what the rules are, then I will be able to listen to him. Now there's some truth to that, but it's not the whole picture. Some of us, on the other hand, are looking for another spiritual experience. That is, we believe that if we're topped up with another spiritual experience, then, finally then, we will truly listen to him because Christian people, almost all of us should at least, have a sense in which this is what we ought to be doing. We ought to be listening to the words of Jesus. We ought to be taking them seriously when they're preached and when they're read. And sometimes, of course, we get a bit of a misunderstanding. We get into a bit of a muddle like Peter does about who Jesus is and we decide to be building tents rather than worshipping him. So with those things in mind, I want to use these three tents that... Uh, Peter was planning to build for Moses, Elijah and Jesus to explain some of these ways in which we try and we fail to truly listen to Jesus. 
We try and fail, these three tents. And then I want to tell you about the one declaration that the Father makes, which actually changes everything. Okay, so three tents, that, and which summarise the ways in which we fail to listen to him, and the one declaration that changes everything. So the first tent we see in the text is the tent of Moses. And this is represented by this idea of obedience to the law. Moses, of course, in the Old Testament, was the one who wrote the first five books, we think, the first five books of the Old Testament. And when people speak about Moses in, in the New Testament, they are talking about the books of the law. And so when uh, Jesus and his sort of three closest disciples, Peter, James and John, go up onto this mountain, Jesus is revealed to them. You know, his, his uh, face is shining his clothes are brighter than anyone could bleach them. They're shining like the sun. And then these two men appear, Moses and Elijah. And Moses is representing the law of God. And of course, we remember, if we go back into the Old Testament, that Moses too went up the mountain to meet with God in Exodus chapter 19. He also had been up a mountain before. And that is the place where he received the law of God. That is how God's people are to live. That's where the Ten Commandments come in Exodus chapter 20. And we've got to remember that as Moses goes up the mountain, the, all the people of Israel are witnessing. There's fire coming down on the mountain. There's smoke billowing up like a furnace. This is an awesome and terrifying scene. The people are told not to come too close to the mountain because God is present. It is holy. If you touch the mountain, he will break out against you and you will die. So this is an incredible scene that Moses himself, when he first went up the mountain and met with God. But now this Moses is here with Jesus. This Moses is representing the law of God in the Old Testament, and more so representing the requirement for obedience for God's people in order to be blessed. That is, God calls his people into a covenant in Exodus 19 and then gives them his law. He says, if you obey this law, you will be blessed. If you don't, you will not be blessed. You'll come under my covenant curses. As we recognize that, and intuitively, I think Christian people know this, is that when we're obedient to God's word, there's a blessing. That is, it's not a promise that you'll be wealthy and healthy and happy necessarily. But there is a blessing that you are walking in step with the Holy Spirit. You are living the life that God has called you to and you have unseasonal joy. Of course, the difference between happiness and joy is happiness depends on circumstances and joy depends on God. And so when you are obedient to his word, you experience joy. Unfortunately, we don't get this right so often. That is, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, we think that we can be motivated by learning more of the law to obey the law. I don't know if you've ever thought that. I have. That I realise that I'm not living the way I ought to be, that my mind is not thinking about the things it ought to be. My behavior is not happening the way that the Bible says. And so I think that I need to read the Bible more and learn more of God's law in order to change my behavior. It's a pure practice of the will. 
I use my willpower and exert it by reading more, by doing more things in order to be changed in my heart. So the equation goes, more Bible study, more obedience. And for some of us, and this is a worse thing to do because it doesn't actually work as it turns out, a worse thing to do, some of us think, we'll go to Bible college. And then, if only I went to Bible college and had greater knowledge, then I would be obedient. Now, of course, you might be thinking, man, this guy's like telling me to do all these things that I'm trying to do and I'm failing. Well, yeah, I am. And the reason is because I want to get to the heart of the issue. And the heart of the issue is if we try and force our will, it will fail us. You know that the um, statistics for those that uh, quit smoking by cold turkeys between 3 and 5%, those who are successful at it by doing it through willpower. That's just one thing for quitting smoking. Do you think that we could possibly be obedient to God's word just via willpower? I don't think so. And here's the best evidence, is that those that saw Moses go up the mountain, those that saw the fire come down and the smoke go up, you know, we fast forward to Exodus 32 to 34, and we find them worshipping a, not God, a golden calf. They said, where's Moses gone? Where's Moses gone? They become impatient. He's been up there 40 days. Oh no. Oh no, where's Moses gone? Quick, we better find something else to worship. And we might scoff at this and go, yeah, that's just them. But no, our hearts are just the same. And they saw the fire and they saw the smoke and they still weren't moved to obedience. See, Israel rebelled because they became impatient. And I think in the same way that our impatience at not getting what we want when we want it also leads us to break God's law too. When we don't get what we want, when we want it, we are also led to break God's law. So Israel couldn't do it. And you know what? Moses couldn't even do it. So we find out as we read through the books of the law that Moses became what? Impatient. Same thing. Because God's people, the rest of them, weren't being obedient. So he sinned in anger at the impatience of the people. He was influenced by it too. And so what happened to Moses? Well, he was excluded from going into the promised land. He had to die. He got to see it, but he didn't get to go in there. So look at this. Those that saw the fire and saw the smoke of the presence of God, and they couldn't be obedient to the law. Moses himself, who was there, right, face to face. Moses is one of the most unique characters in the Bible, probably the best leader in the Bible aside from Jesus, who literally saw God face to face, so much so that his face was shining. Moses' face was shining after he came out from the presence of God. And even he could not be fully obedient to the law that God gave to him to give to the people. This tells us something else about ourselves. The Bible is wonderful because the examples give us insights into our own nature. They remind us that our impatience at others not doing what God wants can lead us to sin in our hearts. Of course, this problem is magnified when we get to the New Testament and the Pharisees 
we find are saying, everyone else is not obeying the law and so they fill themselves up with pride. And of course that is a grievous sin against God. And so as we work our way through the law, we realise that no human leader is quite good enough to lead God's people in obedience. And as we continue our way through the Old Testament, we find that every leader would fail in one way or another. And yet there is this promise that there will come one leader who will not fail. A leader who is perfect. That is, he rules in justice and righteousness and mercy. He is fully obedient to the law. He would be a true leader for his own people. And this, of course, as we get to the New Testament, is revealed in the Messiah. That is Jesus himself. So there's something that we need to remind ourselves and tell our hearts that you will not become obedient through mere willpower. You cannot do it. It doesn't solve the inside problem. You must be changed by Jesus from the inside. We'll get to that soon. So that's the tent of Moses, the tent of obedience. The second tent is the tent of power. That's the tent of Elijah, the tent of power. So Elijah, of course, is on the mountain uh, with the three disciples, Peter, James and John. Jesus is there. And Moses, of course, is there too. Elijah is there. Elijah is the one that, and you see this quite often in the New Testament, they point to him as sort of the, the, the best of the prophets. He's the one who did extraordinary miracles. Things that really hadn't been seen since Elijah's day until Jesus' day. He represents the power of God. He also represents all the prophets. In fact, when you say the law represented by Moses and the prophets, you get the entirety of the Old Testament. So these two are here, Moses and Elijah, are witnessing to Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is the one. If you, if you want to come to God, you need to listen to Jesus. They're witnessing to him. But Peter's not quite getting it. He thinks, no, we need to build a tent. We need to build a tent for Elijah. One of my favorite examples of uh, God using his power through Elijah is, of course, the showdown in 1 Kings chapter 19 with the prophets of Baal. So if you're not familiar with it, I'll give you a bit of a recap. So there was a, a King Ahab and Jezebel. They were evil in the land of Israel. They were against God. Now they, they weren't worshipping Yahweh, the king of the Jews. They were worshipping another god, Baal. But God had called Elijah as a prophet to call his people to repentance and to demonstrate that there is one true God. And so he he has a showdown with the prophets of Baal. On the one side, you, know, you can sort of hear the, you know, um, the announcement from the speaker almost in the background. On the one side, you've got Elijah uh, just on his own. On the other side, you've got 450 prophets of Baal ready to go. And so Elijah, the one prophet of the one true God, Yahweh, prepares his altar. You know, he builds, puts the blocks one on top of the other, prepares the wood, prepares the sacrifice, and he ups the stakes. He pours water one, two, three times on top of it. Still, the whole thing is soaked. And he says, of course, to the prophets of Baal, you need to do the same thing. So they build their altar with the stones, with the wood, and with the sacrifice. And the competition is, see whose God brings the fire from heaven. 
And so, Elijah graciously gives the prophets of Baal the first opportunity. So they're carrying on, crying out to Baal and no fire from heaven. No fire comes down. And then what does Elijah do? He prays. And what comes down? Fire. And so we see this incredible and amazing example of God testifying that he alone is God and there is no other, which we see time and time again in the Old Testament. This is power when God can rain down in fire from heaven to earth. Notice something, and I think I pointed this out before, but notice that Elijah built the altar, but God brought the fire. This is a bit of a, um, something for us to learn from, that we may put in all our effort, we may do everything necessary to prepare, but God alone can bring the fire. So see that this prophet of power in the Old Testament, Elijah, but now Elijah is here with Jesus and he's representing a spiritual power that was supposed to move God's people to repent and their heart to change. Imagine you were there. Imagine you saw, you know, the the prophets of Baal, 450 of them praying and carrying on and and asking that Baal would come down in fire. And you see Elijah, on the other hand, laughing at them, saying, oh, you know, Baal must be asleep. You need to wake him up. You need to cry louder. And then you see him pray one prayer. And fire comes down and consumes the whole thing. You would think, you would think that if you saw that kind of demonstration of power, you would be filled with awe you would think that that kind of spiritual experience would change a person. I'd like to think that that would change me. And yet, what do we see? No, it doesn't change them. In fact, Elijah himself became filled with fear. Isn't this interesting? Just after this occasion, Elijah becomes filled with fear and he runs He runs away from the enemies of God. Though he's seen the power of God, he gets filled with anxiety and he runs. And he runs to another mountain. And he gets to this mountain and he waits for God to show himself in power. You know, there's an earthquake and there's fire and there's these things that he expects God to reveal himself in, but he doesn't. And then it says comes the low whisper. The low whisper. And that is where God reveals himself. Let me ask you the question. Have you ever thought, I just need one more spiritual experience. I just need another one. Just need God to do something big. And then I'll really listen to Jesus. And then I'll just give my life to him. If he just does this one thing, one big thing, maybe it's a thing you've wanted your whole life. It's the one prayer that God's never answered in your life. And you're like, if he just does that one thing, then I'll totally listen to him. I'll really give my life to him. I think you underestimate the power of your heart to deceive you. And what does the Bible tell us? The human heart is deceitful above all else. Many people have said, if God answers this prayer, I'll give my life to him. And then a week later, have fallen back into the same problems they were in before. I remember I have ridden the roller coaster, the spiritual roller coaster of the spiritual highs and the spiritual lows, just waiting for the 
cart to go back up to the top. I've ridden it, and I can tell you that it does not work. You will constantly be like this if you're seeking just one more top-up. You will not find what you are looking for. But I want to remind you, and this is beautiful, God's grace when he meets Elijah. Elijah's running, though he's seen the power of God. Elijah has filled with fear and anxiety, though he was the one that called the fire down and asked God to consume this thing. And yet God meets him in the most humble way. Not with the earthquake, not with the fire, not with the terror, but with a low whisper. That's where God meets him in his heart. And I say to you today that you need to keep your ear out for the low whisper of God, that he would encourage you in your anxiety, in your fear, though you might have had a wonderful experience, that God wants to go deeper beyond these wonderful experiences and transform you and change you from the inside out. And so we find that the people had been waiting for another prophet like Elijah. We find that Elijah was foretold to come and to prepare the way for the Messiah. And this is, of course, revealed as John the Baptist, as we see in the text. We see that this uh, figure, this final prophet of the Old Testament, would come and, and John the Baptist would be in the same spirit of Elijah. And yet we see in the, interestingly, we see in the New Testament that Elijah doesn't seem to be doing many miracles. But Elijah is preaching. And he's preaching something that the first Elijah learnt, that it's about repentance. Notice that John the Baptist was preaching about a baptism of repentance. That is, stop looking for big signs. Stop looking for everything out there. You need to realise that the problem is actually in here. You need to repent. The problem it's not so much out there in the world, it's in here in your heart. You too need to come under the weakness and humility that the first Elijah was under when he was on the mountain that he was ready to listen to the word of God in the low whisper. And John the Baptist, of course, suffered and then died. But this points us, and we see this in the text, that this points us to the one, the Son of Man, who would suffer and die at the hands of men. But it will be through, listen to this, it will be through what Jesus did that our hearts will be moved to repentance. Not through what John the Baptist did, but through what Jesus did that our hearts will be moved to repentance. I'll get to this further in a minute. Okay, we've covered two tents. The tent of Moses, the tent of obedience. We've covered the tent of power, the tent of Elijah. The third tent, the tent of Jesus. Why is Peter building a tent for Jesus? Like it seems a bit crazy, right? And let's be easy on Peter. I think we've all got a bit of Peter in us. We misunderstand the situation a little bit. I don't know if you misread the room and said something stupid or done something stupid. Well, Peter does that too, and so it makes us feel good about when we do that. It's okay if you've done that before in your life because we get to see Peter doing it for us and to learn from it. So Peter's here. He's seen Jesus. He's seen Moses. He's seen Elijah. You know, he's two heroes of the Old Testament. And he's like, oh, build tents. 
In fact, in one of the other Gospels, it says he didn't even know what he was saying. Notice that Jesus doesn't answer him. He doesn't rebuke him like he did in chapter 16. He just kind of lets him go. So what's Peter misunderstand? Well, I think there's a few things. I think Peter misunderstood Jesus' transfiguration. That is, we see the beginning of chapter 17 that Jesus was transfigured before them. Verse 2, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. This is a display of great spiritual power. These sorts of things happen to God. The face shining like the sun that you can't even look at it. Notice that Matthew authored that because you can't look at the sun, it's so bright. That is supernatural. That is God there. His clothes shining so bright. It says in one of the other Gospels that no one could bleach from that white on this earth. That is purity and holiness. This is God amongst them and yet Peter doesn't understand it. In fact, Peter is focused on material things. We notice in chapter 16 that Peter didn't want Jesus to die. And so we see here in chapter 17 that Peter wants Jesus to stay. He wants him to settle down, come into a tent. You know, the Feast of Booths, of course, was coming. Perhaps Peter was preparing for the upcoming feast where they would worship God together. And so he's got a tent for Moses and a tent for Elijah and now a tent for Jesus. And yet he totally misses the point. He misses the fact that the one, the feast that he's preparing for, the, you know, the feast of booze where you build a tent and everyone goes into the tent as a way to remember God's deliverance from Egypt, that he's looking at the great deliverer, that he's looking at God himself. He's missed, misread the situation. I think this is an important principle for us is that so often, so often, we're trying to read the situation. We're trying to work out what to do. And Jesus would just have us worship. Because that's what Peter does when he realises what's going on. He falls face down. So often, we're all caught up. What do I need to do? What do I need to do? You remember Job? You know, his life fell apart. His family died. He, you know, he, he lost all his wealth and his... Material possessions of what to do, he got down and he worshipped. Because that's really the most important thing is not really the circumstances of your life, but whose you are. And if you are God's, then you can worship him when things are really bad because you trust that he is really good. So don't be on about your agenda. Don't be trying to fix stuff up for yourself be consumed by the one who's with you worship him Peter was planning to build tents I think because he also held Jesus as equal to Moses and Elijah that is there's three tents or tabernacles says in a different translation side by side and so Peter's just still trying to work stuff out. He said the right things before. He you know, confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God before. But now he's sort of got him side by side with Moses and Elijah and there's Jesus' tent just next door. He doesn't realise that Jesus is what Moses and Elijah were pointing to. You know, it's interesting, the idea of tabernacling. 
You know, this is that is a dwelling. The word for a tent is a dwelling place, a movable dwelling place. You know, as the New Testament opens, it says Jesus' name is Emmanuel, that is God with us. He came and dwelt with us. God put on flesh and dwelt among us. God tabernacled amongst his people. Peter doesn't realize that the one whom he's building tents for is actually God with him in the flesh right then and there. Jesus succeeded where Moses failed. Where Moses got frustrated and even sinned against God, frustrated with the people, Jesus didn't sin in his anger. Jesus' frustration at the sin of the people, what did it do? It took him to the cross. It took him to lay down his life for the people so that his people could enter the promised land with Jesus at their head. Jesus is the greater Elijah. When Elijah failed and got scared of his enemies, Jesus went into the hands of his enemies. He let them take him. He could have called down armies of angels, but he let them take him so that he would have the greater victory over an even greater enemy. That Jesus, when he went up on that cross, he wasn't just going up against the Romans. He wasn't just going up against the oppression of the world. He was going up against sin, Satan and death, the big three. And when he died on that cross, he put them to death with him. And when he rose from the dead, he extinguished their power for all who would believe. This Jesus is the greater Moses. This Jesus is the greater Elijah. Jesus is truly obedient. Jesus is the power of God in the flesh. And so when Peter had Moses and Elijah and Jesus tent side by side, he had it all wrong. He didn't realize that Jesus was the one that he should have been focused on. And so let me ask you a question. And this is a question about how you read your Bible. We notice that Moses represents the books of the law and Elijah represents the prophets. And so, and then Jesus, of course, the New Testament, do we see them? There's all kind of been equal parts and we read our Bible and we look for, like I said earlier, we look for moral instruction in the Old Testament. When we get to the New Testament, we feed ourselves on the gospel. It's interesting how we read our Bible will actually determine how we can respond to this uh, command of the Father, listen to him. I want you to notice something. This is in Luke chapter 24 and verse 27. I'm going to read this out for you because I think it's very powerful and very timely. Luke chapter 24 and verse 27. This is after Jesus' resurrection. He's with some of his disciples. They don't know that it's him. But this is what Jesus does after his resurrection. In one of his appearances to his disciples, this is what happens. Verse 27. And beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, right, covered the whole Old Testament. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures, that is, all the Bible, the things concerning himself. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is saying the whole thing is about him. It's not just about moral instruction because you know what? If you do that, you'll fail. It's not just about better spiritual experiences and going, wow, you know, look at their spiritual experience from the Old Testament. No. 
It is about seeing Jesus in the scriptures. Seeing that Jesus is the only one who succeeded when Israel failed and their leaders failed. That Jesus is the only powerful one that can overcome the great enemies of humanity. You need to read your Bible. You need to understand the word with the lens of Jesus Christ. And then you will begin to come into the true power of God. One other reason that Peter misunderstood Jesus was that he didn't want Jesus to go to his own exodus. His own exodus. So, of course, remember back in the book of Exodus, there was this event called the Exodus. That is, God's people, Israel, were in slavery in Egypt. And God came through his prophet, Moses, and told Pharaoh, let my people go, and did all these amazing signs and wonders. And eventually, Pharaoh let God's people go as God demonstrated his great power to his people. And we don't see it in this gospel, but we do see it in Luke's gospel. That what were Jesus, Moses and Elijah talking about? They were talking about Jesus' exodus. It uses the same word, Jesus' exodus. There would be another great deliverance of God's people from their enemies. And Moses would have overheard this. Oh, sorry, Peter would have overheard this. Peter would have overheard Moses and Jesus and Elijah talking about this exodus that Jesus was about to have. That Jesus was about to bring about a great deliverance. And, Jesus, and then Peter is like, uh-oh, Jesus is at it again. He's making his way towards Jerusalem. I know he's going to get killed there. I need to make him a tent to kind of keep him here for a while. You see, Peter didn't want... Jesus to go through his exodus, to go to his death. But he didn't realize that that's exactly what needed to happen. And often, often in our lives, we want God to achieve our agendas rather than for us to go through suffering and difficulty. But what we don't realize is that often we need to go through suffering and difficulty for God to achieve his purposes in our lives. Just like what happened with Jesus. And we have the greatest evidence of that. That through the great suffering, the great difficulty that Jesus endured, he won the great spiritual victory. And so you may not think this, but part of your journey of being able to listen to Jesus and to truly take his words in will be through your difficulties and hardships in life. Perhaps they will be where you learn the most and you grow the most. And so of these three tents, we find that Peter wasn't changed by any of them. You know, he, he saw Jesus transfigured before him, but he wasn't changed by that. Peter needed his own transformation to occur. This tells us that knowing is not enough, that great spiritual experiences are not enough. The law and the prophets point to us needing an internal transformation, a new heart. As we come to our last point, that there is one declaration. One declaration. Three tents and one declaration that changes everything. In this declaration, the disciples see the meaning of Jesus' transfiguration. That is, just as Moses went up to the mountain and he was changed as he came into the presence of God, just as Elijah was met by God when he went up to the mountain and he was changed by the presence of God, when God spoke to his heart, 
So too, in a greater way, Jesus must speak to our hearts. We must go beyond obedience. We must go beyond power. We must stop misunderstanding Jesus. We must have him do the work inside of us. And so we see this in verse 5. What happens? He was still speaking, that is Peter, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So Jesus is revealed by the voice of the Father to these three disciples. That is, he is the beloved Son of God. Jesus is first in power and authority, being God himself and part of the Trinity. Secondly, the Father is well pleased with Jesus. Jesus is perfect in obedience. The Father could not be well pleased with Jesus unless Jesus was perfect in obedience. And finally, listen to him. Jesus is the perfection of obedience and the power of God together. And so he alone is worthy of our attention and our ears. Listen to him. What you're looking for is found in Jesus. Listen to him. You might need to hear this again today. Listen to Jesus. Stop trying to sort your problems out your own way. Listen to him. Listen to him. And so what's the disciples' response? And this is instructive for us, and we're going to work through this slowly. Verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. And we too must humble ourselves at his word. That is, we need to say to God from our hearts that we aren't obedient to his word as we should be. We need to say to God from our hearts that we don't have the power ourselves to change. And we've tried many times and we've failed. The example of Israel is the example of our life and our own hearts. And it's there for us to recognise our own condition. We should be humbled at his word. We should fall down off our lofty perch thinking we're so great and think, no, he is so great that he would love someone like me. And I've got to tell you that when you truly encounter God, then falling on your face terrified is involuntary. You cannot help it. You know, I've, I've heard this recently, that we often think that the, the most exciting, ecstatic worship from the people who hold up their hands and jumping for joy, they're, they're the ones in the service that are truly in the presence of God. And yet we find in the Bible that when people really meet the living God, they fall down. Because he's there. He's with them. We see this in Isaiah chapter 6. When he saw the Lord high and lifted up, the holiest of holy, Isaiah's response, Woe is me, for I am lost, a man of unclean lips. He sees the light and he sees his darkness. Peter had this same reaction. Luke chapter 5 verse 8. When he saw the power of Jesus, he said, Depart from me. For I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Terror is a right response when you're in the presence of the living God. Humility is necessary that we would be changed, that we would listen to his words. 
But that is not all. And if you stay there, you will be miserable. Some of us think that we've got to stay in a place of terror and misery. It's not true. Because what does Jesus do next? Working slowly through the text, verse 7. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. Notice Jesus reaches out. Right? Peter, I don't know what James and John were doing, but Peter certainly mucked things up. Jesus reaches out and touches them. Do you need a touch from Jesus in your situation? Because Jesus would reach out to you. And so he has. And so he does this morning. And so he did with outstretched arms on a cross. He would go that far for you. Would he not go that far for your particular situation and your difficulty? The question rather is, will you receive him in your situation, in your heart, in your life? Will you receive him? Notice what Jesus does then, that he comforts their fear. He comforts their fear. Have no fear. Rise. Don't stay in your misery. That's only part of it. Don't be consumed by your failures. You need to know that Jesus, your Lord, has borne that burden. He has taken that punishment. He has gone to a cross. He's gone to the uttermost to save you out of anything. You might think that there's one thing that God won't forgive in your life. Do you think that anyone else has sinned in the way you've sinned in your past? Do you think Jesus' power is not enough to cover that sin too? It is. It is. And when Jesus rose from the dead, we realized that his sins could not hold him in there. Death could not hold him. Satan could not affect him. Jesus rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven. And so he's seated at the right hand of the Father, calling to you. Come to him. Receive him. Hear his words. Have no fear. Peter, James and John would get up at that point because Jesus was their Lord. And so let me ask you the question, is Jesus your Lord? That's the only way you'll escape the misery. Maybe you've tasted the misery and the, and the terror of the living God and realising that your life is not right. It will not be restored and fixed until you receive his hand and he becomes Lord and Saviour of you. Finally, the last thing I want to say, verse 8, as we've worked our way slowly through these three verses. Verse 8. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Moses and Elijah have gone. Only Jesus remains. And I tell you, when your life goes through the, the, the biggest difficulties, I tell you, when your life is really hard and you realize you've got nothing left but Jesus, you haven't got your obedience, you haven't got your power, you haven't got some great spiritual experience, you've just got Jesus, I tell you that's enough. It is enough. He is enough. Because after that declaration of the Father and Him, you realize in your position and being raised up out of it by Him, you see only Jesus and He will be enough. And I tell you, on that great day, on that great day, when you see him face to face, you will look at him and you will say, he is enough. 
No one else in heaven is being worshipped except for Jesus because he is enough for the worship of the whole world. Is he not enough for you? Jesus is enough. He is our obedience because the Father is well pleased with him. And so when we are God's children, we have the pleasure of the Father through Jesus upon us. Jesus is our power. He overcome the great enemies of humanity and the enemies of God through humility and through death and through resurrection. And so too we would find our power and strength in his humility. That we would receive his power by humbling ourselves before his mighty throne. And I would say finally to you that if you can say he is your God, then that is enough. That if Jesus is left there, if you've got nothing else and you just got Jesus and he is your God, that is enough. And so when he is transfigured before you, again, because we can't see him today, but if you're a believer, you will. And you will cry out with all the saints that he is enough. And you'll say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts as your eyes are fixed on Jesus. So fix them on him today. So I call the band up and I'll pray for us. And so, Lord, we pray that this truth of your word would come upon us, that we would really listen, that we would take it in, that we would be moved to humility, changed by your hand, your touch in our situation, your great love for us, and lifted up, and that we would see you alone. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name today. Amen.